how is my shit not nerd rap? Like, people think I'm a fucking nerd, you know? So that's right. my fuck. That's my nerd rap record. That's my me taking nerd rap back. <laughs> that's why maybe yeah. why I like it. You would, but you would never call yourself nerd core, would you? Or that it's who cares it's about titles? Yeah, no, I'm no, I'm, I mean no, I'm yeah. definitely not nerd core. But that's a that's a line I won't cross. <laughs> On the <laughs> but but I'm nerdy. I'm I'm just I can stay nerdy. I'm comfortable. Nerdy. You are nerdy. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello, everyone. You are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, September 28th. This is episode 104. And you know what that means? Yes, September 28th. It's my sister Sarah's birthday. Happy birthday, Sarah. Uh, I haven't gotten to see her since the pandemic happened. She hasn't gotten to meet her nephew, Atlas. But uh, we love you, Sarah, and I know you listen to the podcast sometimes, so hopefully if you hear this, this is a shout-out to you, and I'll talk to you tonight. Uh, Let's see. Speaking of Sarah's nephew, Atlas, let's go right to it. This is this week's Letter to Atlas, and this is from my friend Steven, who was my neighbor in L.A. You may have seen him in the Flow Like Poe video. Great friend. He was at my wedding, and whenever I play L.A., he always... Raps with me on Mr. Raven. So here we go. Take it away, Steven. Is he sleeping? Is he pooping? Just checking in. How's a little boy doing? These are some messages that you left. Wishing our little baby boy the best. Now it's time for Letters to Atlas. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, this is a message for Atlas. Hi, Atlas. This is your Uncle Steven. Oh, you're so young right now, just being born, but you've got a lot to look forward to. The whole world's ahead of you. One day you could even walk among the stars and I'll make sure I always be there for you as your hype man. Love your uncle Steven. Peace. Bye. All right. And this week's episode is brought to you by the following Patreon Larshans. The new one, shout out to Ryan, Carl, and Jeffrey. And shout out to the old ones, Becca, Sheridan, and Liam. If you want to be a supporter of the MC Lars podcast and all of my projects, go to patreon.com slash mclars and you will hear all of my Marvel songs. I'm starting my Star Wars series where I'm doing raps about all the Star Wars movies and video games and TV shows in chronological order. So tune in to that. This week's guest we have is Soul. And Soul is one of the co-founders of Anticon Records. How did I find out about Anticon? Well, I remember reading an article about it in CMJ Music Magazine. I used to subscribe and they had a hip hop section and they had a photo of all the rappers and producers of Anticon. And I was like, oh, this does not look like what was considered a typical hip hop fashion of the time. And when I was an undergrad, I lived in a dorm called Ujima, which was a uh, African-American themed dorm. And so it was like, had a lot of, there were people of other uh, backgrounds who lived there too, but it had a lot of focus on the different cultures. There were a lot of themed houses on campus. And they had a a music workshop where Tajai from the Souls of Mischief came and talked. And I asked him, I said, what Bay Area labels are doing like different things? I know hieroglyphics and Souls of Mischief are on the cutting edge. What else is there? Is anything like weird or something I should check out? And he was like, you need to check out the Anticon guys. So one thing led to another. And I eventually went to see Soul when he was on tour with Grand Buffet when I was studying in England. And I was blown away by his show because it was passionate. He was doing the beats live. Um, he's just a great performer, great storyteller. And um, yeah, Anticon was like a movement, a renaissance in underground hip-hop music. So we met, and uh, we talk about that meeting on this episode. But over the years, we've kept in touch, and he talks about how he launched the Anticon 
experience, the whole brand with PHP message boards, how he used Prodigy, how he went to AOL, and how he kind of evolved with the times. But he talks about now how it's important to have autonomy from social media. And uh, he talks about his anarchist beliefs, talks about permaculture, a word I didn't know he explained, talks about veganism and everything. Being a father, it's a great episode. So we're going to hear our collab we did on Indie Rocket Science after this interview. So this is my interview with Soul, aka Tim Holland. Hello, friends. I'm here with a man I've known almost 20 years, uh, Tim Holland, a.k.a. Young Soul, a legend in the indie hip-hop community, and I wanted to have him on the podcast for quite a while. He has his own podcast, and before we started, he was giving me some technical tips on like what things that work for him. But uh, Soul, you just had a second kid, and you're doing great, I, I assume. I don't know. I'm just assuming. Tell me how you're doing today. I am doing great. Um, you know, it's uh, it's been a weird week. We actually had like a um, couple chickens got eaten by foxes this week. So it was very traumatic. And so we just got rid of all the rest of our chickens, brought them to my sister's house. And now we're, we no longer have chickens. So um, it always like as a vegan, it makes me feel like shit when an uh, animal gets taken on our watch but other than that yeah great we were out here in maine having fun having a fun summer just had a well nine months ago had daisy our second kid and just kind of doing the quarantine sourdough you know playing in nature you know trying to figure out what life means in the quarantine you're someone who's made a career where i've learned from you that you talk about like the main the biggest commodity is time, right? Like being able to do what you want with your time and own your day. And now you're a dad twice over and being an artist, do you feel like you're able to be a more like present father than had you picked a different career? Um, well, I mean, you're really hitting that hits the hammer on the head as far as the time stuff goes. And that's the interesting thing about uh, coronavirus to me is how like, capitalist time has like been interrupted and frozen at times and like it forces me someone who thinks about those things to think about you know my relationship to everything in the world and how do I want to spend my time and so it's like the idea of owning time is sort of uh interesting because I used to think about owning my time but now my time doesn't belong to me it belongs to my kids pretty much you know mm, um yeah and so I feel like um, the work, the business model that I had set up for myself over the last 10 years where I transitioned away from touring more towards, um, putting out records and, you know, basically spending most of my time doing activism. Uh, I feel like I had set up a business model for myself that allowed me to be home more because I wanted to be home more because I was getting into gardening and shit. And yeah, it's like, I feel like, because, but I think it's more so because I'm a podcaster and a farmer, you know, uh, if I was a touring musician having to tour three to six months out of the year right now, I can't imagine, um, I think it would be very difficult. Are, are you like, are you, do you still plan on, do you still tour a lot? If venues are opening, right? Like if everything works out and I'm trying to do two week chunks. So like West Coast home for a month. Uh, Midwest, you know what I mean? Because yeah. I just don't want to miss 
his first steps or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> I, I have been touring less, you know, I, um, I used to be out, like you said, like six months a year. And, um, in the past five or six years, it's kind of, I've pared that down and Patreon has been like a reason why I've been able to do that, you know, Same, which has been cool. Yeah. I learned it from watching you, Lars. That's what's up. Yeah. You were like the first one to get on it, you know? And, uh, that's tight. And so I, I just like, Oh, okay. I'll do that too. Do you still use Kickstarter and stuff for albums? Um, I don't know if I still will. I mean, the last time I did it, it was like we in the middle of a summer. I don't know. I haven't really made a decision about that, you know? Um, honestly, I'm like uh, applying for some PPP loans right now. And so if I get them, it would feel weird to use Kickstarter. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm not opposed to anything, you know? Uh, whatever makes sense, that's honest. Um, and... You know, I f- like right now, like Patreon really does it all for me. But if I if I want if people want vinyl and I don't if I can't afford to press up vinyl, I'll do a Kickstarter even if it's just for a couple thousand dollars because um, I I just think, especially now, like before, like th- six months ago, I was kind of like I'm never doing another crowdsourcing campaign again. But now after the coronavirus, it's kind of like, huh, maybe um, that's going to be you know the only way in the future. You know, like patronage is the future, unfortunately, like the way the music industry is set up, you have to rely on your supporters and you have to have somehow, this is where I feel you and I are in a similar basket, built a organic, real like patronage base that exists outside like the corporate bottlenecking of all the algorithms and everything that like you and I have somehow kind of skirted that in a way where I think some artists from our era who started, who maybe were more reliant on labels or less DIY kind of have stopped because it's been hard to transition. I don't know. I, I, do you agree that like having that direct connection and having had toured is what has get, allowed you to keep that patronage going? I think so. For I think that, but also like, evolving and just being really honest and real about like the way, like what's in my heart or whatever. It's like I, at a certain point I was like, I don't, why should the publicist make $10,000 off the record? Mm. And I only made whatever, 6,000 or, you know, whatever the, whatever the figure it's like, wait, why should the publicist make more than the producers? What, you know? And, (laughs) and like, why am I paying? Like I looked at my Facebook once and I was like, I, I had spent like $5,000 over the course of a couple years on Facebook ads. And I'm like, why am Mm. I giving these assholes money? Like it's crazy. Um, and yeah, and so I feel like, you know, before, you know, I used to have like PHPPB message boards and then like right Mm. from there, I mean, for me, it was really like I built this. We built this Anticon infrastructure, and then when it was no longer working for me the way that I I needed it to, and I pulled my stuff away, I had to like get on like this in like 2009 on a real hardcore self promo tip, um, and so I really kind of learned how to like reel in all my assets and like you know, and I think it's I hate to talk about it that way, but that's what you have to do. You have to reel in your assets. You have to look at like okay, I can't survive without labels. I need these fucking middlemen here. I need these people, these blogs. I'm like sharing these articles from these blogs that don't give a fuck about what I do. And all these platforms are essentially like hostile, you know? And, and with, nerd, yeah. with nerd rap, quote unquote, I'm sure it's like the same thing where you're like, man, these people don't give a fuck. This is just some <laughs> clickbait, you know, for these assholes, you know? Yeah, and it's like the 
victory of having a publicist, it became for me like 2015 is getting that person to convince like Nerdist and stuff that what I was doing was clickbait that wasn't wasting their time. Like we did a Star Wars song, but it came out when the the, the new Star Wars movie came out and everyone was like, well, we're get, we have enough Star Wars content. I'm like, oh, but I have an emotional connection to this. It just felt like, you, yeah, you make a good point. It's annoying to pay people to feel like you're bothering them. <laughs> You know, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. <laughs> and like the people yeah. who really didn't add any value to the art. But the thing is, is like at a certain point, you know, it came down for me to like a question of ultimate goals. And you're talking about time. It's like I realized, wait, if if I tour, I have to tour six months out of the year, essentially to like recoup a record that like a label dumped all this money into. And then all these like all this infrastructure. And it's like, what was the net gain after all that? I actually could just make an album in my basement, sell it on the internet and feel way more satisfied than just grinding it out literally so middlemen can eat off of my back. And I realized this is how the whole yeah. industry was set up. And then when it started collapsing, you know, fuck yeah, Kickstarter, Patreon, whatever. Um, but, you know, but, but, but also it's about evolving in an interesting way. You know, like there are people who I've, um, connected with from the beginning who have been with me since live poets, but have mm. also like, you know, I, all these people who've like gotten into anarchism and permaculture and gardening and veganism. And so like, there's all these like threads of, of, um, you know, breadcrumbs that I've left with my music. And a lot of those people have gone on to do awesome shit. And like, I'll get an email from somebody and be like, Oh, I'm, I'm this person. And I, you know, and it's, uh, and it's fucking cool. And so, you know, it's like I, I sacrificed having the sold out shows and the the pitchfork bullshit and like, you know, the 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 article that your homie writes about you in what whatever magazine and to, mm. to, to just focus on what I cared about. And that's like being a dad you know, making art that I'm excited about. Like, you know, the, nothing is better than your first few tours. Right. Your first time in Paris, your first time like waking up in San Diego and going to get a bagel and the, the, <laughs> the ocean dew on your face. And like, after like grinding it out on these 10 hour drives, you know, three months at a time, you're, you know, you're like exhausted and it's like, hmm. Maybe there's another way to do it. The two week run. I tried doing the two week run thing when I first started having kids, also. And uh, okay, but my shows aren't as aren't as big as yours, so I think you could probably do it better. Like last time I did, I was like, mm. I don't need to do this. Were you working with um, the same agent that you had, or were you doing like DIY shows, or how were you setting it up? Um, yeah, I have a booking agent. This guy Nick. It's not. I've, I've I've used different booking agents over the years. I still work with Nick, but I. You know, I'm not really touring that much. That must be, it's interesting, Tim, because you, through knowing you, you've always, like, I remember you had that PDF with one of your um, Kickstarters on, like, articles you'd collated, you know, and learning about, I always feel like your music is more than just a musical experience. It's always, I feel like, helped me see the world in a different way, and it's informative in a way that people like KRS-One, I would learn from him. Like, hip-hop I love when it is like I can take something from it. And you you said something, a word that I'd never heard that I wanted to ask you about just now, permaculture. What is that word? Oh my God, you don't know what permaculture is? No, I, I wanted to find you out. You know what, there's no one I'd rather talk about it with. 
<laughs> Holler. Um, permaculture is a form of farming or gardening or growing. I mean, this is how I would describe it. Um, first of all, I really don't even like that identifier, but it is a word that's a stand-in for a set of practices. So permaculture is this idea of creating regenerative um edible landscapes that are like capturing the natural flows of sun and wind and water and creating like, you know, living ecosystems that can support people and animals. So like food forests are the typical permaculture thing where you have like a fruit tree and instead of just having an orchard, you, you grow some medicinal herbs under it, perennial vegetables. And there's all these like old school vegetables from, from Europe and Russia and, Amer- and the, the Americas, like ground nuts were uh, like, or kind of like, yeah, like a taro or something. And they, they're indigenous to North America. And that's what native Americans mm. ate instead of potatoes. And they have proteins like this, all this crazy as a vegan, it's like all this crazy food. And so uh, the reason why it's interesting to me is because it's just like Sim city. It's like, you're, you know, when you're like, Growing annuals like tomatoes, cucumbers, it's like straightforward. Whereas mm. like uh, when you're planting perennial vegetables, it's a longer game. So you'll plant something that's like an inch and then next year you come back, it's two feet tall or it's six feet and climbing or they're all dead, you know, and it's literally like like Sim City. Like you have no idea what's going to happen is, oh, did putting an intersection here cause the, cause the crime to go up or whatever. And so right. it's like, uh, or Godzilla to come, right? Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like the closest thing to like strategy. Cause you know, they've killed off the real time strategy genre for some, for mm. some reason. So it's like, I had to start, <laughs> had to start farming. So it's permaculture and that, that plant is there permanently, theoretically, instead of, yeah, yeah, perennially. Rotating it you out. know, and like perennially. And like we don't really like the only perennial vegetables we really eat regularly are like asparagus, artichokes, like stinging nettle. Like people don't even think about it. It's like this wild green that people just think is horrible, but it's one of the best things. Anyway, I don't want to get on a whole sidetrack <laughs> about that. But yeah, I just it, it's like Sim City. That's why I love it. That's tight. Um going back to Touring, we met in London in two thousand three when you were at the I think it was called the Beat Kitchen, the Beat Factory. You were out with Grand Buffet. Do you remember this show? Um, I remember touring with them. It was uh, I was studying over there, and I came. I took the bus up to see y'all, and uh, I remember you were friendly and nice. And I told you, "Oh, I'm a rapper from the Bay Area," and and you're like, "Oh, okay." And you were like, instead of being like laughing at me, you were like, "Oh, what's your what's your MC name?" I was like, "That's really sweet." I've never met a rapper at a show who asked me. My rap name. So I uh, wanted to thank you for that. That was cool of you. It's so funny. I mean, like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I really don't remember that moment. Uh, you've told me before that that's when we met, but I, uh, you know what it was? That was like when I discovered hash. Like I'd never really gotten to smoke uh, Moroccan hash until I went on my first tour in Europe. And um, I don't think I remember much from that first tour. I think I just <laughs> smoked a shit ton of hash. How long was that tour? Was that a long tour? Or it's hard to remember. It's kind of hard to remember. If I recall, it was five weeks, five or five weeks in the U.S., five or six weeks in Europe. Wow. So not not crazy, but a good long. It would feel very long today. Have you ever stayed in touch with the Grand Buffet guys? Because I know they kind of been dormant. Yeah, not really, not really. I mean, I've I've reached out to them a few times, and we've like I've talked to Lord Grunge, um, but we don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really in touch with them. I would be though. I like them. 
Yeah. And there's so going back to the idea of the bottlenecking of social media music, it's interesting how they've kind of, you can't find their stuff on Spotify or anything because they just want you to go to their band camp. They want to like own everything. And I think that a new generation would appreciate them if they had been more like you, flexible and able to put stuff out as industry changed. I felt like it was, it was as a fan of theirs too, it was interesting to see them kind of stop, you know? Yeah, I don't, I can't speak to that. I really don't know. All I know is, you know, just speaking personally, when you grind, like those, those fools toured nine months out of the year forever, they had like anyone who saw them thought it was like one of the best live shows they ever saw. And, um, you know, it's almost good to stop on a high note than, Mm. you know, than to, than not to, but yeah, it would be, it's, it's, uh. That's interesting. I mean, Lord Grunge did actually. Lord Grunge made a pop punk album that's kind of like a light libertarian, kind of Ayn mm. Randish uh, pop punk album, and that was ri- that tight. was hilarious. Did you hear that? Um, yeah, that's uh, there was the Tresser and Duck Pepper, right? Or his two records, solo records. <sighs> so funny. So you left Colorado what, like five years ago. <laughs> Well, in baby time, yeah, it was in baby time. It's like ten years ago, uh, but no, really, two and a half years ago. Not even just two, just two years ago. Last July, two thousand eighteen or nineteen, whatever it was, like two years ago. And you was your first, your first kid was born in Denver or in Maine? Denver. Oh, okay. First, I, my sister got a farm out here for like a hundred thousand bucks with like twelve acres on a fucking lake, and I was like. It was a fixer up, but I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like I wow. have, I have that much equity in my house. I could sell my house in Denver and be mortgage free somewhere. Um, and, and that's what we did. And we don't have a mortgage, which is crazy. Um, that's what's but, up. You know, and, uh, like all the org, the anarchist organizing I'd been doing in Denver, like from gentrification and police repression and just all the things that had happened, like the, the community, that um, I was a part of had basically been destroyed and there was just a couple of us left. And so I was just like, I was just kind of bored and lonely and just like, I don't, I don't know. Like this place is being flooded with like these, like these shitty yuppie people that are like, you know, it's like, and like, you know, I, but yet I have to walk past all the all these miserable people who have just, who are just like trapped between all this gentrification. There's all this tension, like, and I just felt like, you know, I wanted to raise my kid in an environment that was like we were on a busy street. Like he couldn't ride his bike. He, or if mm. he wanted, like the other kids play in the alleyways where we have gunshots in our in our fence and people shoot heroin behind our porch like i don't want my kid playing with fucking heroin needles you know and i'm certainly like not with the neighborhood watch shit and trying to like help the place get any further gentrified it's like where what is the thing for me to do is to go back to my homeland you know um so it was that it was like wanting to do more with gardening and wanting to learn more like farming for real because you couldn't really do it in a city but really to be around family and to raise my kids in a more holistic environment and set ourselves up so that we could actually be present for our kids the way that we want to, so that we could require less and less money to live so that we could afford to 
like be there all the time because the option of like working extra extra to put your kids through daycare and all that and then have like strangers who kind of don't give a fuck taking care of your kids like that i'm not i'm not i'm right. not excited about that either and so it's like i chose to just be less pro- we both chose to just be less productive for the developmental years of their time and you know kind of like hit reset and figure out where we want to go um we've certainly wish washed on whether or not that was a good decision you know when you're under duress sometimes you make rash decisions that aren't um that you know that wise and so like that first year i just felt like i was going crazy i couldn't get anything done i couldn't think it was hard like i've always enjoyed working out of the house my home was my castle but that's because i was the only one there my wife was working all day and now that there's like fucking crying babies and like the house just got really small and i was like i gotta get the fuck like none of this is working anymore and like if i if we had wanted to move in denver we never could have afforded it because the property went crazy. So, and what do you think led to that? It felt like from two thousand playing there at um, the Marquee Theater from two thousand seven to like recently. That's that street, for example, got so built up and like redone and like de- gentrified, right? Like, what led to that in Denver? Weed. I mean, before weed was legalized, Denver was the number was the number one. Um, place where millennials were moving healthy lifestyle uh what i would call like a european quality of life where like it's a beautiful city nice you know all the stuff and you know oil and gas outdoor stuff or yeah the outdoor stuff oil and gas uh was all going there and really it's like climate wise it's arguably the best climate in the country in my opinion and so people just got hip that denver was an awesome cheap and amazing place to live. And so everybody came there and then weed was legalized in 2013. Mm. And then that, like literally that year, all my homies, like I, I was, I remember being on the phone with a friend once. He's like, Oh my God, my landlord just came in and told me they're raising our rent by $1,200 next month. And because Denver didn't have any rent control stuff, like anti anti rent oh. control was written into the Colorado constitution. And so like all these people literally like, because like all this property was going for weed grows, all these warehouses got shut down, closed down all these arts. But it's just like a, a, a cascading set of events um, that caused, you know, and I, we had bought a house right, right before all that. And so like, we just bought a piece of shit house that was, was, was a piece of shit worthless when we got it. And then it, it went up. And so we're like, you know what? When you're living in a casino, you cash out when you've double, doubled right. your money, basically. You know? Wow. Good work. What, what was the series of events that brought you to Colorado? Because I know you'd lived in the Bay, right? Was that before? Or like, what, what was your movements? We were in the Bay. Um, you know, uh, kind of everything just felt kind of easy and it got boring. And so I was like, you know, I want to see more of the world, you know? Um, me and my girlfriend at the time, we, we were like, fuck it, let's get married in Vegas, go live in, in Europe and figure out what we want to do. So we went, went around like, you know, took like an extended honeymoon and then went on like a really long tour, like a two and a half month tour that went from Portugal to, um, Israel. Actually, we went all the way from Portugal, oh to Israel, drove all the way to Athens. Uh, we, 
Yeah, we drove to fucking Athens through Serbia, Bosnia, played shows in Serbia and Bosnia, drove through Macedonia. I mean, it was, uh, we saw riots, you know, we had like tear gas in our hotel room and just, it was crazy. Um, it was awesome, wow. you know, um, really eye-opening. And then we're like, oh, we'll go, let's go live in Spain. So then we lived in Spain for a couple of years. Um, then Hurricane Katrina happened and I was like, I want to go back. And then Sage Francis invited me on uh, one of his tours and it was a really big tour. And so that was, that enabled because we were kind of trapped in Barcelona. And so it, it enabled us to kind of like leap back over. We lived in Flagstaff and Sedona for five years. And then we kind of felt like we were too isolated out there and we wanted to live where there was good vegan food and shit. So we moved to Denver and stayed there for 10 years and uh great place to live denver's i mean i definitely i mean people who've stuck around have have seemed to say it's leveled out a little bit and a lot of the stuff that I, that was frustrating me has it's like progressed but also there's like lots of good stuff happening there too so um what do you like about other than the ability to farm and the space you have, what do you like about the part of Maine where you're living? Is there, have you found like people, anarchists or people you've been collaborating with or, and stuff like that? I've definitely linked up. I mean, the, the best thing I've linked up with is um, when I moved here, I like researched like who the big permaculture people were as well as the anarchist groups and, you know, things that I'm interested in. <clears throat> um, and I uh, just like drove to the nursery and, met this guy, uh, Aaron who from Edgewood nursery and just like, then all of a sudden I was like, I recognized all these plants he had. And I was like, Oh my God, these are the plants I've been reading about that I've been trying to grow for years and years and years. And like, this is what you eat. This is your life. Like what the fuck? And so we just developed a friendship and, uh, I've learned like just so much from this dude. It's been just incredible. We do a podcast together called propaganda by the seed. And so really <clears throat> getting to study, with someone who's like the real deal, like the real, real, real deal is amazing. Um, it's like, it's, mm. it's made living here really cool. Um, and uh, beyond that, I've also through my podcast, lots of like anarchist farmers reached out to me when I moved to Maine. Um, and so we started having like reading groups and, you know, getting together and we have like a bunch of, we were working on this cooperative farming project for the summer, but that didn't fall through. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's like, I've liked really, I've met some really cool people out here. Um, it's a little different when you have kids, you know, it's hard to like socialize the way you used to. Um, and, uh, other shit about living out here is just like, just like the surprises that when you're actually like living near forest, cause we're like, we're in a college town, Brunswick, which is where Bowdoin college is. And so we, mm. we have the benefits of a college town, but we're also like, you know, a budding, a river and a, a forest. And so, you know, like you said earlier in the conversation, yes, we have foxes, but we also have like, you know, just like yesterday, me and my kid, we like, you know, went out and we had some frogs spend the night. So we found some little tree frogs and brought them in. Like the other day I looked out and there was like a family of ducklings in our pond and like <laughs> all the like weird little surprising nature things is awesome. Um, and, uh, just being near the ocean. We've not been near an ocean for 20 oh. years. And just like we went to Peaks Island yesterday and we were on an island, you know, just like driving around on golf courts, carts. And it's like such an alien experience when you haven't been, 
you know, deserts, mountains, oceans, these vast, awesome things, you know? Yeah, we're figuring it out, man. I mean, the coronavirus really has shown us that we can do a lot and we have options. And that's been an interesting solution. But I know for a lot of people, it's pro- it's been like horrifically scary and limiting and stultifying where this has felt like during the birth of our son, it's given us all these opportunities and we're fortunate, but like, well, how has it affected you, man? Other than like having to be quarantined? I mean, if I'm being honest, um, first of all, I fell in, I, I think we had it, uh, in January. I'm not sure, but like a whole bunch of my friends, we were all, my friend, a friend got hospitalized. They said it was bronchitis. We were all laid oh, out wow. for like three weeks, like just awful. Um, I mean, it's a combination for me because honestly, it's made me feel depressed and it's made me feel like I, I've kind of always been thinking about like collapse and, you know, the end of the United States or whatever. And when it starts to come about in ways that I hadn't envisioned it in a scenario, I hadn't envisioned it in, um, I just always imagined like a sort of slow economic collapse, and like we would have time to adapt in some ways, like as a, like like as someone who thinks about public education, I think it's always about like spreading out information so that people understand like how the, it doesn't have to be Mad Max. You know, we can like be good to each other. People want to be kind. People don't necessarily like. We need to think about <clears throat> not wanting to like kill our neighbor to eat, but how can the neighbor neighbors do what we did for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and so because I see the whole world as like wholly unsustainable, a huge part of why I actually moved here was like on some doomsday prepper shit, like straight up. Like I just Mm. wanted, I've been obsessed with learning to grow my own food because I think that the world we live in is very fragile and it doesn't take much to bring it down. As we see, like I remember in the eighties hearing stories about people lining up, in the Soviet Union for toilet paper. And here we are mm-hmm. in 2020 lining up for toilet paper and being excited when we finally start seeing bleach and hand sanitizer in the stores. And <clears throat> so on one hand, I'm blown away by the incompetence of the government. I'm blown away by how the aid has been distributed. You know, like for instance, I didn't know how I was going to, I'm sorry to like be talking about money or whatever, but it's like, I didn't know how I was going to pay my property taxes. We didn't have money for it. And then like, like we got 2000, 2,700 bucks from the government. I was like, okay, we don't have to worry about that now. Um, mm. But it's like, you know, I'm not essential. You know, I have Patreon, I have all these revenue streams set up. And then on top of that Bandcamp did those solidarity days, which was incredibly Mm. huge for independent artists. Like, so I've actually done okay over the pandemic and my wife is collecting unemployment. So she's making more money than she would have made if she was working. And not hating on that. I think that's awesome, but I think it's fucked up that people are risking their fucking lives for $9 an hour at Trader Joe's while we're fucking hanging out, playing fucking Adam and Eve with our kids running around chasing butterflies. It's fu- that's mm-hmm. fucked up. And so what <clears throat> the way that the the aid has been distributed is not fair. It's like deeply going to like <laughs> 
you're going to have all these like small business type people now have hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars of disposable, forgivable income to fucking line their pockets and expand their businesses and expand their hold in the system while the people who've been keeping it fucking going, who've been forced to work in fucking in unsafe circumstances and then they talk about them like they're fucking they talk about them like they're soldiers but it's like yo they're not fucking soldiers they didn't sign up for that like if they don't fucking do this they can't pay their rent so all that shit i think is just super fucked up but for me i've just found it to be kind of depressing time i've just kind of stayed home tried to focus on my kids i haven't been really driven to make art i haven't i mean i'm starting to like want mm-hmm. to make art now because i've just been in the house for so long but um you know it, it was coming on the edge of winter when we were all just ready to get out we were, you know living in, in the east right. coast you're like man fuck this shit i'm ready to get outside <laughs> and then all of a sudden we can't go outside anymore um and you know, and it's just like, it just it's just sad. All these people are dying, and they shouldn't be. And then you have it like the anti-science people, like that's horrifying. They're like all these Trump people who are like just like fuck a mask, you know. And it's like everywhere I go, if I don't, if I see someone not wearing a mask, I'm the dude who asks you, why aren't you wearing a fucking mask? Because I don't give a fuck. Fuck you, you know. Um, you're putting like we live in a place where there's all these elderly people you're putting them at risk go fuck Mm, yourself yeah right you're right that i think you brought up interesting point that yeah the distribution and certain people are certain people have done well and done okay and certain people have been like lost their livelihood or like died from it and the leadership has been so disheartening and like I just am like, I don't, I can't read the, the news. You know, I'm really focused on like, okay, well is, what can I read about that's parenting related and what, and I'm writing songs about stuff that's not related to this. You know, I, I, it's weird. It's so weird to feel like for the first time, very much decentered from connecting with wanting to talk about political stuff or social stuff and feeling like I don't want to write about it. People are burnt out hearing about how much we hate the president. And it's so, it's just like, I'm very hopeful for, the election changing things. And I'm wondering as someone who understands a lot of political stuff, do you feel like November could help or do you, are you kind of pessimistic about it? Um, I think it would be great if Trump lost, but that's about all that would happen. Um, Biden is hardly an inspiring candidate, you know? Um, But I mean, the stuff that Trump has done and continues to do, like if there is another election and that remains to be seen, um, again, that's why, yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. Like with my podcast, I, I just was like, I'm just doing plant shit. I'm just doing like right. other shit. Cause I like, <laughs> I don't want to have a hot take on this. Like it changes every five minutes. Like, yeah. Yeah. like this yeah. shit just sucks and it's fucked up. And, uh, you know, and like, you know, again, like I was saying, I was like, I, I don't feel guilty that I'm not that, that I set up my life to be a certain way. I've really just gotten used to like an acceptable level of poverty. So it's like you pull the fucking, you pull the fucking rug out and uh, I'm still dancing. You know, I, 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 I've been trying to push capitalism out of my life the whole time. And that's like, if anything, I feel like those are the positive things to come out of this or like to imagine what could we do better? How can things change? I mean, there's been all this like mutual aid stuff, all this like people helping each other, the rebellions against the police, cop cars on fire. Like mm, we're just yeah. getting like the, you know, someone I was reading this thing from a French philosopher and he was saying 
you know, the world, the 19th, the 20th century began in 1917 with World War One, and the 21st century begins with coronavirus. So that's interesting. So, that's great analysis. Yeah. <laughs> books are something that, and reading is something that of, of any other rapper I know. I remember you've always been about the quotes, the referencing, like reading is important. How do you make time to read as a parent? Do you just make sure you, like during your office hours? Yeah. How do you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't read as much as I used to. I used to mostly read on tour. Um, but uh, yeah, I have a thing where, I mean, where I, like kind of like just read I, I need like specific settings to read like a hammock or like a, a week like we have a room that has our books in it that doesn't have a tv it has a fireplace like mm. or the bathtub or something like i can't like i can't just sit there and like read but i don't read that much you know i'm, I'm mostly like one of these people who are addicted to their phones and my attention span has been um, short-circuited. Have you ever read uh, Nicholas Carr, The Shallows? No. Tell me about it. He, he just talks about um, neuro, neuro, neuroplasticity and just the way that like um, the human mind is built to always seek out more information. In the same, in like, and so when the f- iPhone was invented, like no one really understood that like we would be it would like rewire our brains and like, like in it and like its effects on like cognitive ability and like, you know, because now, you know, you don't store directions in your head anymore. You don't, there's like numbers of things that you don't keep in your brain anymore. And so it's like, like we're cybernetic yeah, or phone numbers, I guess, but that was cell phones. I still, I still remember my like top 15 phone numbers from like 1998 to 2004. And those are the last phone numbers I've remembered. Oh, good job. That's impressive though. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, so I don't, I don't read a lot, but yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll like, I'll be like, and that's the cool thing about the podcast is that <clears throat> if like there's a subject I want to learn about, I'll get the book, I'll read it and it will, I'll, I'll like, sometimes I'll be like, I haven't read the book. I, I can't talk to this person. And then it's like, all right, I'm going to just set a fucking date. Like I'm in college and say, okay, we're doing this interview right. on January 27th and I'm going to have my homework done before then. And I'll, I'll have read, read enough of the book. Yeah. That man, that's, what's cool about the podcasting is, uh, forcing you to, to be up on people you're talking to, right. Forcing you to like dive in and understand and then make time to have these conversations. And it kind of like takes away from the instantaneous, like talking about brain rewired thing, like the phone, it's like the long form content forces, I feel like forces me to look at media and information in a way that before social media, if that makes sense. Even though we, we use that, it's like a really, like having this moment with you. We haven't like had a long conversation like this probably for a few, since I last saw you in Denver years ago. And it's like, I think it forces, technology forces people to be more present in a way. And that's positive, right? Yeah. I mean, no, the technology is you know, the, 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 the internet, the computer is a tool, you know, and I, you know, it's enabled, it enables us to do great things. It's just like, um, we have to have like that, uh, good relationship with it. And, but the funny thing is, right. Like when there's, pe- when there's people you have a rapport with, the good thing about that is you don't have, you didn't have to do any preparation. You already like, you know what I mean? We've had, we have a rapport. That's true. Yeah. For this, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, you know, and that, and it's like, I like as a podcaster or whatever, like people always, like I, I always feel like guilty or something. If I do an episode with a good friend and it's just like, we're just having fun and just 
chatting basically. Um, like, uh, like I, I'm always like, can I get away with this? And people are always like, that was my favorite episode. Like I learned so much in that right. episode and da, 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 da. And I'm like, like, yeah, you know, cause it's like people, people know a lot of shit. Like everybody we know, knows some cool shit, has an interesting perspective. And that was like why I started the podcast, mainly interviewing hip hop artists, because I felt like the rappers I knew were so fucking smart and no one would ever ask them smart questions. People would just ask them, oh, right. what's your favorite? What inspired this? Like what, uh, you know, what, what are your influences? Like what's, you know, like just like stupid, like shit. No one cares about like, no wonder print media is dead. Y'all didn't write anything cool in there. It was a bunch of bullshit, you know? And that, <laughs> right. and, right. and that's what I'm not like an accelerationist or whatever, but it's like, that's kind of like, like, I think like you, you, you choose, do you want to live or not? And do you want to do what you love for a living or not? Like you have to engage these things. You can opt out. You can go live in the forest if that's what you want to do. But if, you know, we all have to do something to survive. And so it's like if, if engaging online and, you know, if being a slave to the algorithm, you know, or learning, like constantly negotiating that space, basically, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's so weird. It's so postmodern. Yeah, it is, dude. And having it negotiating that space versus it negotiating you, right? If that makes sense. Like you figuring out how to make that space work for you as opposed to being like, you know, some YouTubers or some of the nerdcore guys are like, okay, well, we got to do our song about this video game this week because it comes out Friday and this and that. And they get millions of views, but that would to me feel soul killing. But some people's brains are wired so they can let the algorithm like when they lock in the algorithm it's like the matrix right and just blow up and that's tight i mean good props to yeah that. but how that's like that's very fleeting that kind of shit is very fleeting you know especially now more than ever um you know it's uh i mean you know and again it's weird because like you know when i think about my relationship with the internet like i had prodigy in 1993 and i had a dial-up modem and we then i was on aol and then i was on news groups you know and then that evolved into ma- right prodigy me too yeah prodigy was yes, awesome that takes me back and then then, yeah. then like you know then then i'm on message boards and then it's the blogosphere and then it's social media and at first it seems like oh this is cool like oh my god look at all these people but then like none of them had profit models built into them and so once they figured out oh the only way we can make money is to basically like siphon off their fan bases so that they have to pay us so that people see the stuff then it's like oh my god we just spend all these years building up all this stuff and now we're supposed to like pay to you know access our fans and and like um, yeah. and just like the whole like the stories shit on Instagram it's really like that's why it's, I think it's important to always like take a step back. I mean, like a take a step back moment where I'm like, went back to biweekly with my podcast and I'm like trying to think like how, what is a smart use of my time? Like, I think I want to make more music right now. I don't want to just be pumping out podcast episodes. It's actually a shit ton of work. Um, yeah. And, and then, but then it's like, you make the podcast and then you have to go on social media and you have to like, like you know create a some people make like animated videos to promote a a clip and it's like yo how many like i don't have an extra fucking eight to 12 hours 
after I've spent all the time editing this shit and writing the write up and the graphics, it's like it's. I know you know I and this will air a few weeks after we've talked. The thing that saved me is is front loading them. If I hadn't had like before I started, had like five or six, right? If I hadn't done that, I would have. You know, I don't see any direct money from this. I think people who listen might go on my Patreon and stuff and like support my friends too, which I think is cool. But it's it's a grind, but I enjoy it. But yeah, having like you got do you find you have to do them like way in advance? I do the same thing. I I I usually have them a month recorded in advance. When I went weekly, I I recorded like eight up front and then I just um because I'm the same way it's like I don't think like being in like a frantic desperate like uh, like it, it's got to be and plus it's good when you have a bunch that you can kind of like like craft an uh, uh like an experience like okay I did this person this week I wanted to do this person this week but this happened and this seems like a what what people need to hear right now or whatever and uh so yeah, it's, uh, I like I like that that model also of just recording them in advance because also I don't like doing like topical news stuff typically. I think it's better to mm. make them timeless so that people can go through and listen later. That's what's up. Uh, have you ever had Sage? Have you had Sage Francis on? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. Um, yeah, totally. I got I got to listen to that. So you've been able to interview a lot of people you've worked with and toured with, as well as the um, the the. Uh, gardening stuff too huh yeah totally i mean i've i actually like a pm press hit me up and wanted to put out a book of all my rap interviews and uh and so i i handed it in so wow so that's like a that's yeah tight. i mean that's i mean that's like one of the biggest anarchist publishers in the world with all the like black lives matter protests and this and everything happening with everyone's anger against the police what are some things like my audience and I can do to th- you think help like making the world a better place with all that. I think to get educated, obviously to learn about, um, you know, history and why things are the way they are. Like Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow, you know, find some, find in, find some interviews with Michelle Alexander talking about, you know, incarceration. Like I, I feel like the John Oliver piece on abolition about prisons that he did recently was just a, a succinct argument for why the police need to be abolished and to understand. Mm, yeah, I saw that. And, yeah. I was just like, this yeah. is, it's great. This is on whatever HBO, whatever, like millions of people are, and people are agreeing with that now. And so I think like understanding that like, A, there are things fundamentally wrong in our society and that it means that the people who are comfortable now have to be willing to shed some of that comfort so that black people can stop being killed by the police. You know, a thousand, pe- a thousand black men a year get shot by the cops. It's one of the leading causes of death. Um, And, you know, when you look at how the coronavirus is playing out, all that stuff. And so I think like actionable things that people can do, it's like, it really depends on what your skills are and what your resources are. I think to always look at like, what are the, what are the radicals of color, wherever you're at, who are the people doing real work, you know, helping, helping making sure that the funds go to groups that are doing work outside of the state groups that are not like like cozying up with the cops, people that are confrontational towards the police, whether that's like in a legalistic framework or on the streets or just through agitation. Like it's been proven from all these riots that, that that's what works. Like, like, like asking politely, 
has not gotten anyone anywhere. Nonviolence alone is not capable of bringing about the systematic reforms. Like people always talk about how the sixties were peaceful and all this stuff, but that's, it's a whitewashing of actual history. Yes. Martin Luther King used strategic nonviolence, but he also had guns. <laughs> um, and, right. and like the, the eight hour work day, you know, the end of child labor in the United States, women's suffrage, you know, Stonewall, all these like major coming out, moments in history that have dramatically changed our way of life were militant struggles. And so people need to educate themselves on how change actually happens. And we're seeing it now, like, Mm. you know, all these, like all this peaceful shit over the years hasn't accomplished much, but you know, 20 cities on fire woke people up. Now all of a sudden people are defunding the police left and right. Cops are losing rights now. The cops are on the attack. They've lost legitimacy. The state's lost legitimacy. And so what they're going to try to do is recuperate that anger and like manage the despair and get things back to normal. Well, normal was that the police evolved from slave catchers. That's where the police evolved from. That is the lineage of police. And so the institution of policing has to go. Um, and so coming from that, it's like analyzing what the actual problem is, the systematic foundational problems in our society. And what can we do? Like out here, there are all these like Somali, um, farming co-ops and things like that. And it's like, you know, you can support those people. You can, you can do anything in some ways you can do like, like try to, um, you know, like they say, like support, support black businesses. I think that that's, you know, or, or like support people in their efforts, you know, and not in like a necessarily, not just financially, um, showing up, you know, just being a presence. Like I, like I went to a protest in Portland. I mean, there's 5,000 people, mostly white people, 5,000 people marching in the street. Like that's one of the biggest protests in my life. There's only a hundred thousand people in Portland, Maine. Um, you know, I think doing those things, studying history, showing up, getting out there and also just speaking up when you see it. Like I saw like the cops pulled over a black dude in front of my house the other day. I walked, I just walked out front just kept drinking my beer and I was just giving the cops that body language, letting them know I'm fucking watching you. You, you should be uncomfortable right right now. And they sent the guy off with a warning and then they arrested the next guy. So, um, so (laughs) I mean, but you know, it was different circumstances, I'm sure. But, um, so yeah, I think things like that, um, you know, and I, and I, and I, and really like, you know, amplifying, radical black voices. It's, it's like something I find with my podcast. Like it's like, you know, in, in the world of anarchism, it's pretty white typically. And so it's like trying to like, not just hear from white dudes all the time. Um, that's good. That's and that's some. And the yeah. only other thing I would say is like you know, there's also some great pieces that have been written lately. If people want to like, if white people want to educate themselves, like there's this piece by the Indigenous Action Network called "Accomplices, Not Allies." I think like the concepts of allyship are cool, but they in some ways like reaffirm um, white privilege in strange ways. And so it's like a way of like thinking about things a little differently. Like how can we be? How can we help? each other in struggle? How can we be intersectional in ways that like recognize that our struggles are linked? However, um, at this moment in history, like 
we need to sort sort out this shit right now. This shit needs to get sorted out. So how can we like, how can we all be stronger together? And not this idea of like white people have to sacrifice themselves to, mm. you know, in the name of Black Lives Matter because of our white privilege. And it's like, yeah, sure, but that also erases whiteness was just invented a couple hundred years ago. Like Irish were sharecroppers and it's very complicated history. Yeah. Like a you it's hard to tell a poor white person in the in the trailer park that they're privileged. You know what I mean? Like I, right, I, I understand right. the the difference there, but um and so it's just we need to think critically. It's and that's what's so awesome about this moment is like we're thinking about ab- abolishing the police. We're thinking about all this shit and uh just to not be afraid and because we're gonna have to make sacrifices and they're probably not and if if 2020 is a sign of what's to come things could get ugly fast so god forbid another worse like international virus or or virus were to come like we're fragile right and and i think the thing about coronavirus is it's shown that we're all human that like that's obvious but like we're all affected by this we're all it's brought us all together and i think that's positive like they'll look at this moment this year is going to be in the history books like you said a big momentous year and it's cool to be able to talk about this stuff with you, man. I appreciate your perspective. I mean, it's the biggest year in our life. You know, it's like nine 11, but wait, it's like a nine 11 every three days. I mean, it's, ins- <laughs> I mean, it's like, again, it's like, yeah. And that's how I feel talking about it. I'm just like, I don't have, I don't have much to say. I'm just like, man, this is fucking crazy. This is just, it's just so yeah. fucked up. That's what it blows my mind that the president of the United States behaves the way that he does. It, it, like it's, it's literally destroying the world. Like if you were to somehow put together a robot of all the worst things of, of that could be, that's him. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- I mean, cause the thing is, it's like, you know, we just, I just have realized throughout the years, it's like how, um, how fragile our like musical, uh, economies are. We're always like one canceled show or two canceled shows away from, <sighs> f- you know, falling into or someone ripping you off or like whatever it is, like, or a bad decision, you know, and then next thing you know, it's uh, you're up shit's creek. So, yeah, or like, like I was fortunate. My tour finished like March third, man. So I would have been like with all the merch I bought and all my everything I invested. I was so lucky. We had the tour was over because I knew the baby was coming. Nice. So he kind of saved us. But you're right. It's we're fra- It can be very fragile. It can be very fragile in our industry, which is I guess exciting. But when you have a family. Not so much. <laughs> I don't no, know. no, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, again, that's like, and again, those are the other questions I have for myself is like, what does my retirement look like? What does, like, when I think about um, part of it for me is like thinking like, how can I gracefully age? And that, you know, I see some mm-hmm. people who are, you know, been around longer than me and like, you know, we, we get to learn, like, although I always say I don't have any mentors, um, we get to learn and see like, okay, well, what, if I keep doing this, then I'm going to be this age, like selling verses to like weird drug dealer kids or whatever on, on, on the internet or whoever, like some trust fund kid who like wants to fucking, and that's, you know, or playing weird shows or like, it's like, that's not a a retirement plan. Like that's not a way, like, you know, we're not going to like, we're not going to, I mean, even like the, a lot of the jazz greats and shit, a lot of those people just, or rock and roll, like, like a lot of these seventies musicians and shit. Like you don't, 
Like it's not a meritocracy. Just because you did some cool shit doesn't mean the universe is going to take care for you when you're 70. No. When you start thinking about that, you start thinking about what 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 do you what's the solution? I mean, I think the solution is um, to find. Well, A, to just keep doing shit, you know, and just have fun and just seeing yeah. what works and what doesn't and, and just having fun and just staying, remembering like what, what brings you joy and inspiration and how do you want to spend your time for the rest of your life? Like, you know, that changes year to year. And like right now, it's like for me, it wasn't touring anymore. It was being more of like a poet. So I imagine I'll probably write more books. I'll probably, you know, I don't know, do more shit like that. Probably, I mean, I'll keep making music, really into making beats. Maybe I'll start a restaurant. I don't really know. Uh, it really depends on how things go. I, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, but I know that like, like solely relying on music to provide for the rest of your life might not be, a. it doesn't work for everyone. And, uh, be wise to I don't want to doesn't doesn't mean I want to be a landlord it's like what can I do that like links up with my values maybe you know we just planted like tons of blueberry bushes so maybe we'll have a little blueberry farm <laughs> something that doesn't require a lot of work you know yeah. like that's my thing is like yeah okay we're thinking like oh you can do it all you can pick blueberry farm like we just bought like 250 blueberries and trees or whatever bushes and like they were babies and so I'm just like growing them till they get bigger it's like that seems like a good idea but then like when you do it, it's like, oh shit, like I have ticks all over me and it's, it's sunny. <laughs> or like I bought it, I had like this idea of making these like crazy snow globes with 3D printing. And so I bought uh -huh. like a 3D printer a while back and like, I'm going to be a 3D printer artist. And I just started like ma making yeah. all the shit. And I was like, I don't understand AutoCAD or any of this 3D design shit. I don't like it. This, this fucking thing keeps melting and burning and I have to like recalibrate the fucking printer every fucking time I print. Like this sucks. I don't enjoy it. I want to throw this thing out the window. Well, being able to change your mind, I think is huge, man. I think that's an important thing you learn as you get older. Being able to like be like, this isn't working. I'm going to try this. That's, that's a sign of a sustainable good artists I feel like and I'm always impressed and I, I wonder if you think about this and we'll wrap up on this how long you've been able to do your th own thing how many decades like you've been able to be soul or like versions of that like do you ever look back and say wow this is amazing how, how far I've taken this yes I think it is amazing I, I mean in some ways it's not at all what I thought like I, when I got started in 93, I was like, had a offer, a record deal offer from Jermaine Dupree, you know? And so I always imagined I was going to be like, wow. you know, the first dope white rapper, you know, to blow up, you know? And then I realized that like, I was just drawn to too much weird shit to ever really be that dude. <laughs> you know, I like the dense, weird, nerdy yeah. poet shit, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I just feel really lucky. And anytime I'm stressed about you know being a parent is stressful so anytime i'm stressed about whatever i'm always like okay but look at all these positive things you know this has been a really cool i mean especially just because it's been i've been able to just grow through it and use it to educate myself and have fun and you know and that's what like 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 when I moved out here, I was like thinking about retire, like retire, like how do I have a graceful retirement or whatever? And then like coronavirus is like, man, I don't want to even hear my voice. Like fucking just don't. And then like, 
a week ago, I just couldn't stop thinking about music. And, hmm. and so all I want to do right now is make music. And it's just like, and I think like that's what it's, it's important for me is to like follow those like impulses and never to like, for, I don't have writer's block ever, but I also don't force myself to make art when I don't feel like it. You know, if I'm, and that's like, again, like I feel like Patreon has really helped with that to make it so that like, like I can just work at a, at a, at a reasonable pace um, and, uh, yeah, it's just like the idea of like, you know, being like this, okay, I write songs from two to three and, uh, this is like my Monday is my writing poetry day. And, um, yeah, I just think being able to like, yeah, change your mind to have fun, to grow, to, you know, to experiment, you know, life is short. And it's like, what's cool is just following those whims. Like I said, like just a couple months ago, I thought, that I was going to be, I just couldn't imagine wanting to rap anymore. But now I'm like, I just can't stop rapping. I'm just loving it again. So that's awesome. That's good to hear, man. And I always, I mean, don't you feel, do you ever feel like, oh man, this, maybe this isn't what I should have done with my life. And oh man, I, I'm doubting <laughs> myself right now. And, and then it just like, you, I buy into it for a couple months and then I'm like, oh wait, no, I love this shit. Like, this is awesome. You know, it's hard to be an artist. Yeah. And, yeah, and I think the other thing about rap is it's always been a culture of youth and a culture of what's instant and what's new. And when you're older, you can be, you can, it takes mental discipline to not apply that metric to yourself because it's different. Hip hop has grown and become like so, such a diverse, incredible thing, right? So it's like, yeah, the aging rapper, right? That's like a kind of a new construct for our generation or or the generation before us where before you could have the aging blues artist, the aging folk singer, you know what I mean? So it's like finding personal value for yourself is for me what skirts around that doubt, if that makes sense. Like, oh, I'm too old for this. Or like, what? why did I decide to do this? Because it's something I wanted to, you know? But like young Jeezy is our age, you know? Young Jeezy's not, you know, like a lot of these rappers are, are – are like, you know, are older, you know, they're like 50 and no one forties, like no one, but no one thinks about it cause they don't talk about it, you know? Um, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And, yeah, and so, so it's like, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think like people like thinking of someone like Sage or something like, you know, it's like that guy, he's not, he's not 40 something. He's that's Sage, you know? It's timeless. That's the goal. I mean, the, but the sad thing is, is that like, you know, the, I mean, part of it is just the music industry and like the way it like rewards the the new and doesn't have much use for anything that, you know, is old unless you like your Bon Iver, right. you know, or something yeah. like that. But that's just the way it is, you know, whatever. Again, that's why we build up our own little worlds so that we're not reliant on that so that we can just do what makes us happy and find who gives a fuck and fuck with those people and uh, be a be a good dad and a good human being. So, you know, and keep yeah. it moving. Is there anything we can plug for um, the, the audience that to send people to learn more about your awesome work? Yeah, you can go to my website, soleone.org. It's got all my music on there, my my latest albums. You can check out my podcast, The Soul Cast. Talk a lot about philosophy and food autonomy and radical art. And uh, you go to my Bandcamp, Soul that Bandcamp. Spotify, all that bullshit. My latest album that um, that I was really pushing was No God Nor Country with DJ Payne One. You can check that out on uh, 
your favorite corporate streaming algorithms. <laughs> I was listening to you. I was listening to you um, the other day, and it was some new stuff that I hadn't heard. And it was the stuff with Pain One. I was like, "Yo, this is dope!" Like the thing I love about you, and I'm not just trying to blow smoke. I love that whenever I check out what you've been doing, it's always like, "All right, Tim's having fun, and the new stuff is." Fresh. I was going to email you about about it. It came up on the uh, yeah the world's not yet gone. It came up on my like recommended artists and well, you know what? I'm so glad you mentioned world's not yet gone because that is actually my most recent record. But it's so fucking weird. I didn't really promote it. It was like a collection of short of oh. short science fiction raps where I just basically imagine like um like it's kind of like a they're all all stories set in like a far future scenario or different far future scenarios like you know one is like I'm a uh, I'm a miner on Mars another one I'm I'm uh you know I'm <laughs> right. a poet I'm I'm the, was that Red Lung, the Miner on Mars one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, or just like all this like, yeah, yeah. So it's like, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's like, um, that was what my beef always was with nerd rap. It was like, yo, how is my shit not nerd rap? Like, people think I'm a fucking nerd, you know? So that's right. my fuck. That's my nerd rap record. That's my me taking nerd rap back. <laughs> that's why, maybe yeah. why I like it. You would, but you would never call yourself nerd core, would you? Or that it's who cares about titles? Yeah, no, I'm no, I'm, I mean, no, I'm yeah. definitely not nerdcore, but that's a that's a line I won't cross. <laughs> On the <laughs> but but I'm nerdy. I'm I'm just I can say nerdy. I'm comfortable. Nerdy. You are nerdy. Nerdcore? Mm, I don't know. Not me. <laughs> that's what's up. Pain one did. He did two. Uh, I worked on two songs with him. He's great, man. That dude is. He's a monster. Yeah. Do you know he a, a good monster though? He used to make prank call tapes back in the day. That's how I first heard about him. What? Do you know about this? I was uh, I'll keep this brief because we're gonna, we'll end it. But I used to have a website where I'd review prank call tapes like Jerky Boys bootlegs and stuff. And he was part of that community in the nineties. The tape and he has some very funny I prank calls that. That, I, that he did. I actually yeah. was on probation for making prank calls when I was a kid. So <laughs> I, I I had my own prank tapes. Did you ever hear the Mister Dibs prank tapes? No. I haven't. Are they tight? Those are my favorite. Um, Where can I so get those? Look, just I think they're on YouTube actually. But just hit up hit up Mr. Dibs on Twitter and ask him where can I listen to your prank tapes. Um, it would be interesting to see how they would have aged. But um, I just remember, you know, he had this style where he'd be like, "Hey, you fucking asshole! I was wondering if I could make a to go order with your mother and uh, you know and like and I sort of like." took that style when I started going to Europe and shit and I would just start like saying like I'd be like oh do you know where the motherfucking Eiffel motherfucking you know tower and then they'd be like yes I know where the Eiffel motherfucking tower is dude I'm American it's so funny anyway that's yeah. what's up I, I'm gonna have to ask for those tapes because that sounds hilarious that's tight um, okay well be sure to check out my man's work and Tim I appreciate your time I know you're busy this is this is a, a great episode and I'm glad we got to do this thank you Hey, thanks for having me, and uh, you know, enjoy the front lines of parenthood, man. It's a it's a ride. Thanks, man. And maybe um, yeah, maybe I can ask you some parent questions someday if I ever if I'm ever in a quandary. Hey, anytime. I I wish I understood. It's so. It's actually I feel pretty lucky. My wife is actually a, a educator and knows a lot about early childhood psychology, so I can kind of like I've actually 
trying to like the thing I'm working on right now is to stop saying no and to um, always phrase it in a positive. So instead of saying, don't do that, offer an alternative because we're at like the terrorist three stage where like it's like developmentally appropriate to test those boundaries. And so figuring out ways to divert that energy in a positive way and not like repress. That's what I'm learning right now. How old is your older kid? Three, three and three something. So does it get easier or does it get crazier? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's <laughs> it gets easier than it gets crazier. Okay. I'm only look, I'm only a couple chapters ahead of you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it seems easy and then it's not. And then we had another kid, so that just is a whole nother mm. level. But it's you know how it is. Like you feel like the lowest, most stressed, but then the highs are also like the highest. So all the cliches, you know. It's, it's almost like the I feel like it's almost like the first few years of touring. I feel like that adrenaline, you know, that's how it's felt. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny you said that because actually I, I described it like being on a long, endless international flight. Soul1.org, right? That's the website. S O L E O N E. That's what's up. Soul1.org. And I thought we'd end with our song from my mixtape. The uh, Remember our gun control song from like 10 years Hell ago? Yeah. I thought we'd drop that flavor. Awesome. All right. Peace. Thanks, Tim. Peace. Some of the victims of Saturday's shooting were released from University Medical Center in Tucson yesterday. One of those is Eric Fuller, who was shot in the leg and hit in the back with bullet fragments. He joins us now for an exclusive interview this morning. Mr. Fuller, good morning to you. Good morning to you, sir. Let me just ask you right off, uh, how are you doing this morning? How are you feeling? And, and of course, thank you for, for taking the time to, to speak with us. I'm outraged. I didn't know, quite know how to react. I, I felt like uh, we were in for more, possibly to be uh, given a coup de grace by this madman that was uh, so uh, vigorously exercising his Second Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, vigorously exercising his Second Amendment rights. Christina Taylor Green was born on 9-11. She was only nine years old when she was sent to heaven. Shot up in the parking lot, read it in the Times. So many people massacred in Tucson, tell me why. In our land of prosperity, wealth and conviction, full of contradiction, poverty and prisons. Maybe it's the media, maybe it's the press, maybe it's the hunger, isolation. Or the stress, we're so pro-gun, pro-life, pro-ammunition At Columbine, Virginia Tech, the killers get efficient Got kids wishing they could one day be Famous all up on the screen, like the monsters that they see Live on Ustream from the scene, watching victims run and scream Peep the carnage in HD, selling ads for you to see Catch a bullet in the knee, how is this an issue? Please ask Christina Taylor Green, G-U-N-C-O-N-T R-O-L is what we need yeah, I didn't know about the fragment in my back I, I was incredulous, it, it was uh, a dream-like sequence, a, a bad dream this madman that was uh, so uh, vigorously exercising his Second Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, vigorously exercising his Second Amendment rights. When the last white baby is born in the last test tube on an alien planet, it'll come out blast. You should have fucked up, raised them, called the duty. And I know game developers that used to work with the military. They're on some last stop fighter shit, some blast Al Qaeda shit, but who gave the gun to Arab dictatorship? People say freedom comes through the barrel of a gun. Tucson, freedom was robbed by the the barrel of a gun Think a rifle gonna stop him when the tank's in your area John Bird Society Going Jake Rivera Or it's a patriot A code for racists now Misplaced blame Point the guns in Mexico The statistics speak for themselves We got more murders per capita Than the entire western world Every Budweiser that is sold before noon A bull that finds its home In America's womb A woman knocked the clip out of his hand And I, I think that was probably gonna be intended as a, That was going to be the enemy Possibly to be uh, given a coup de grace by this 
madman that was uh, so uh, vigorously exercising his Second Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, vigorously exercising his Second Amendment rights. Great interview. Thank you, Soul. I appreciate it. And be sure to stay up on his projects. Next week, we got Lex the Lexicon artist, a younger nerdcore rapper who's getting a lot of love in the scene, uh, getting a good buzz. I wanted to say, if you want to leave a message to Atlas, the number is 510-463-4237. Again, that's 510-463-4237. Shout out to everyone who checked out the Four-Eyed Horseman stream this past weekend. We're doing another one on Halloween. So every month, Frontalot, Megarand, and Schaefer and I do a stream. A live concert. So check that out. Lex was on one two months ago, I think. And so that interview is next week. My next Star Wars song is coming in like a week. So stay tuned for that. Thank you all for listening. Peace.